Morning. Good to be with you this morning. September's like another new year, really, isn't it? It's a, it's a new academic year, and uh, as has already been discovered this morning. Someone take that up, Mark. Is that some? That's it. Oh. I nearly had Darren worshipping at my feet then for a moment. But not quite. Men in black up here were very impressive, weren't they? Did you notice that? They're, they both had black on. I don't know whether that's a uniform for the singers today. But, uh, but yeah, September's like another new year, a new academic year. We may not make New Year resolutions normally, and we certainly may not make New Year resolutions in September. But in lots of ways, it is a time of new beginnings. Uh, when Mark and I chatted yesterday, and um, he told me what... Uh, He was thinking about sharing, and I told him what I was thinking about sharing. We discovered that God's Spirit had been at work, and uh, unsurprisingly, in a way, because it is about new beginnings. It's a new time of the year. And um, maybe that's partly because uh, it's the academic year, and all things new are starting up in school and in church. All the regular activities get going. But for some of us, at least, uh, I don't know whether you're one of these people, but if you've had time to go away for a bit of a holiday... um, Ours has been a particularly busy summer, but we managed a few days away this last week. And maybe, like me, it gave you a bit of time to think and reflect upon priorities in life, what you do, where you go, who you spend time with. And um, maybe that's uh, why some of you are here this morning for a now and then Sunday that Abbey Church holds regularly. I think it's the first Sunday of every month. But these now and then Sundays are for people who might just think about coming to church now and then. That's why it's called Now and Then Sunday. And maybe for you, you've been thinking, well, maybe I ought to think a bit more about God. Maybe I should think a bit more about the claims of Christianity on my life. What, what is it all about? And God, of course, is a God of new beginnings. He is a God who uh, is always doing new things. Mark has already touched on the fact that once he begins work in our life. He's always shaping and molding us. He's changing us. That's the way that God does things. And uh, they come under the heading of grace as far as God is concerned. Grace is a very Christian word. That's what I want to think about a little bit this morning. Philip Yancey once said about grace that it's God's last best word. Grace is God's last best word. You can think about that. Chew it over over lunch if you want uh, rather than the sermon or the preacher, you can think about that, God's last best word, grace. Because the Bible is full of stories of new beginnings, new opportunities. Begins with Adam and Eve, the new creation, the new beginning of all of creation. But all through the Bible, stories about Joseph and Moses and David and Peter and Paul and the dozens of people that Jesus healed both physically and spiritually in his ministry in this world. They were all new beginnings, and there are many more new beginnings that we could think about. But one I particularly want to think about this morning, you'll find in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you haven't got a church Bible, Phil's just picked a few up, I would encourage you to have a Bible in front of you whilst we think about these verses. There are not many verses to read or consider. It's page 312 if you're wanting a church Bible, 312. 12, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, for some of you, this is a really well-known story that you've heard uh, spoken about possibly many times, although maybe not so much recently. I can't remember the last time I heard 
a sermon on this story of David and Mephibosheth. For some of you, it might be the first time you've ever found it in the Bible. You didn't even know the story existed. Well, whether you're coming to it for the umpteenth time or the first time, my prayer is that God might speak to us this morning through it. As we come to this chapter in 2 Samuel 9, what we find is that David has come uh, into his kingdom. He has become the king. He's taken over from Saul. God had placed him as the king over Israel. And he's been king for quite some years, 12, 15 years or so, maybe a little longer, but round about that kind of time. And he's been the king. He's won his victories. He's settled. The land is at peace. He's sorted. He's in charge. And you get the sense that he too is taking a summer holiday and he's done a bit of reflecting, he's done a bit of thinking, he's done a bit of wondering about people, about situations, because we find that 2 Samuel 9 begins with David asking a question. Let's read it together. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machiah, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machiah, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given you your master's grandson everything sorry, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. It's a lovely story and I hope it'll speak to us this morning, teach us something about grace. Because uh, in verse 1, the word that we have translated in the New International Version as kindness could equally be translated grace. So you could read it that David asked the question, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show grace for Jonathan's sake? To whom I can show grace for Jonathan's sake. 
And uh, grace is a rich word, isn't it? Charles Swindle described this story as the greatest illustration of grace in the Old Testament. You might say that the New Testament equivalent story might be, as I was thinking about preaching on this morning, but then changed my mind and decided I would preach from this story. The story of the prodigal son is another story of grace, of God's grace towards people. That's the story that Jesus was telling. But this is a lovely story of grace, maybe the greatest illustration in the Old Testament. Grace is unmerited favor. Charles Swindle said this, Grace is extending special favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, who hasn't earned it, and who can never repay it. Grace is extending special favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, who hasn't earned it, and who can never repay it. And that's exactly what David did for Mephibosheth. I knew I'd trip over that at least once this morning. That's exactly what David did for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't deserve what David showed him. Mephibosheth couldn't earn it. Mephibosheth could never repay it. It was all about David's kindness, David's grace. You see, when new kings came to power, as David had done some years before, what normally happened is that all of the family of the previous king was destroyed. They were killed because they didn't want them rising up against the new king. But David had made promises both to the previous king, Saul, and to Saul's son, Jonathan, who was David's best friend. We don't have time to look at them this morning, but if you want to look later, you can look in the previous book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and then 1 Samuel chapter 24, and read the conversations between David and Jonathan, and then David and Saul, where David made promises and said, I will not forget your family. I won't forget your family. And so he's remembered these promises. As I say, probably some 15 years later, because uh, it tells us in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, that when Mephibosheth became lame, he was five. And at the end of this chapter, you may have noticed that he had a young son named Micah. Now, at least 13, if not 15 years, had thus elapsed between the two. So David had been around on the throne for that length of time. But then he had remembered, and he wanted to show this grace towards his friend Jonathan, and indeed even to the previous king Saul. And it's interesting, isn't it, as we look at these verses, there's a couple of things I just want to point out to us that uh, I find interesting. Verse 3, the second half of verse 3, Ziba's response to the king, when the king asks the question, when David says, is there anyone left? that I can show kindness to. He says, well, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in both feet. And if you read between the lines, and and maybe I'm taking Scripture too far, but I think if you read between the lines, you might almost hear Ziba saying, are you sure you want him? He's crippled in both feet, you know. You might not want him around. (laughs) He's not up to the mark. He's not your kind, really. Not sure you want him round the palace. You sure you want him? He's crippled in both feet. And there is that sense in, in Ziba's comment there. But it's lovely to notice that David appears either not to hear him, and I don't think David was deaf, 
but more likely chose to ignore that little sideways comment that might suggest that really Mephibosheth shouldn't be in the king's palace. He ignores him, it seems to me, and goes straight on with the question, well, where is he? <laughs> he doesn't take any notice of Ziba's comment, such is David's desire to show grace and kindness to whoever was left, in this case, Mephibosheth. And then verse 4 tells us um, also uh, that when David had asked the question, where is he? Ziba's answer is that he is at the house of Machia, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, I'm not a a Hebrew expert, but I do read books that help me understand things. And I understand that in Hebrew, lo means no, and debar means pasture or pastureland. It's from the root word meaning pasture or pastureland. So you could read verse 4, the second half. He is at the house of Machia, son of Amiel, in no pasture. He was in a nowhere place, Mephibosheth. He'd run away, understandably. He'd spent 15 years or thereabouts in hiding, he thought, very successfully. He was in a little backwater somewhere where nobody would know he was. He was in a scruffy little town called Lodabar, called No Pasture. A desolate, out-of-the-way sort of place where Mephibosheth was. Can you imagine, as he's there in this little house with Machia, son of Amiel, and a knock comes at the door. (laughs) And I don't know whether he opens the door or somebody else opens the door, but there are the servants, the soldiers of King David saying, the king wants to see you. I'm not sure about you, I'd have been at least quaking in my boots and thinking to myself, hey up, life's up. Not much time left for me. The king's found me. He wants me to come to him. And I think Mephibosheth would have come with a great deal of fear and trembling into the presence of King David. I, for one, certainly would have done. I suspect you too would have been feeling like that. But the first words that David says to him, apart from his name, which is in itself quite beautiful, are, don't be afraid. It's all right, Mephibosheth. Because I made promises to your father Jonathan and your grandfather Saul, you're okay. It's all right. I want to show kindness to you. I want to express grace to you, Mephibosheth. And I tell you what, you're going to be able to sit at my table from here on in. You'll have all your meals here with me. Well, quite what Mephibosheth made of that, we're not told. He does say in verse 8, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? But David doesn't seem to notice the um, difference in the appearances of the two people. He doesn't seem to notice the fact that Mephibosheth is crippled and probably dressed in a very scruffy manner to come into the presence of the king. Maybe that's what Ziba was hinting at. He takes no notice of that. His whole desire is to express kindness, to express grace towards Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, as we've already related in verse 8, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? The message version of this says, shuffling and stammering, not looking him in the eye, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth said, who am I that you pay attention to a stray dog like me? He felt like a stray dog. He felt like nothing 
in the presence of the king. Not surprising, really. But there was more. David went on to say, not only are you going to sit at my table, but Ziba, you're going to look after Mephibosheth. And all of your sons and all of your servants, they're going to look after Mephibosheth. You're going to farm the fields. You're going to make sure there's enough food for him, enough for all of his household. He's going to provide for Mephibosheth. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture, particularly, of God's grace to us, is it not, if you think about it. That's really what I wanted to come to this morning. It's a lovely picture of what David had done with Mephibosheth. It was very real for Mephibosheth. He was not somebody who thought of himself very highly. And David brought him into a position of honor and said, you, you sit at my table. I'll provide food for you. I'll provide shelter for you. It's all yours. Because I've made promises to Jonathan and Saul, it's all yours. And God says to us this morning, in exactly the same sort of way, my grace is there for you. Do you remember what we said earlier? Grace is extending special favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, who hasn't earned it, and who can never repay it. And aren't you and I exactly like that, just as Mephibosheth was with David? Aren't we exactly like that in God's sight? We are not people who have deserved God's grace and kindness and favor. We are not people who have earned his grace. We are not people who could ever repay his grace. Philip Yancey once said about grace that grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and nothing we can do to make God love us less. There's nothing we can do. We can't earn God's grace. We can't in doing good things, make him love us more, make him more gracious towards us, and neither, in quite an extraordinary way, neither can the worst of our sins make him love us more or make his grace abound to us anymore. It is already full. His grace, his love are already full for us. They cannot be fuller even if we try to earn it. They cannot be fuller even if we are the worst of sinners. Like Mephibosheth, we are brought from a place of barrenness. Not physically. I don't suppose too many of us have come from a place called no pasture this morning. But spiritually, we come from a place of barrenness. God draws us to him and says, I love you. And he draws us to himself. And he invites us into his presence. Like Mephibosheth, who was adopted into David's family, we are adopted into God's family. The Bible tells us, in love he chose us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. We are part of his family. If we know and love the Lord Jesus this morning, his grace has drawn us into his family. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. We can't repay it. But we're in his family. Like Mephibosheth, we have no right to be in the presence of God. Mephibosheth had no right to be in David's presence. It was only because David said, crippled or not, you're welcome. I love you. Come into my presence. In the same way, we have no right to be in the presence of God. But his grace means we can come before him. The writer to the letter 
of Hebrews said this, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's grace enables us to come into his presence. And like Mephibosheth, whose whose crippled feet constantly reminded him of his weaknesses and of David's kindness, so the sin in our lives, the wrong things in our lives, the things we think and say and do that we wish we didn't, and equally the things we don't think about and the things we don't say and the things that we don't do that we really should, those things remind us that we are very far from God, but God's grace draws us back to himself. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So says the Apostle John in his first letter. So there are lots of similarities between Mephibosheth and us this morning. That's a lovely picture of the grace of God reaching out to you and to me. But of course, grace is not just a blessing uh, from God to be enjoyed. It is that. (laughs) But grace is something not only to be enjoyed, but to be lived out. And if you and I are Christian people here this morning, if we have come to faith in Jesus, if we have known what it is to come before him and ask for his forgiveness and to trust him, then his grace is due to be worked out through us, that other people might see grace in us. Those people that we find hard to get along with, in particular, need to see God's grace in us. Our uh, youngest daughter was married a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they came back from their honeymoon on Friday to be told by their landlord on um, Saturday that, uh, to use her words, um, if you want to find somewhere else to live, you can. She's a particularly unusual woman, this landlady. And um, I said landlord earlier, no, I meant landlady. And um, they've had difficulties with her from the moment Joanne moved in, and now they're both there together. And uh, she was talking to us last night about it, asking us to pray about it. And, uh, and she said, we, we don't know whether we should stay to show God's grace to her or whether we should just say, okay, if that's what you want, we'll find somewhere else. And they're not too sure quite what they should do. But for them, that landlady is a means of grace. (laughs) They have to show God's grace to her. Whatever their decision is, they have to act in a right way. And, uh, well, if you remember Joanne, you might pray for her and Nathan as they grapple with that particular difficulty. But God's grace... We're expected to be working it out in our lives. Where is the challenge for God's grace in you, I wonder? So as we come back to this story of David and Mephibosheth, imagine with me, would you, for just a moment as we conclude, that there's a table set for a meal. And uh, David is there, of course. And... uh, Some of his children are there, Amnon, you know, the crafty one, and Absalom, the handsome one with the long hair that got him into trouble later. 
And Tamar's there, the beautiful daughter. And some other people are there. Joab, maybe, the commander of the king's army, is there. Maybe Solomon has decided to prize himself away from his many books and join them for a meal. And they're all there. And then you hear a clump, 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 as Mephibosheth half drags, half walks his way to the table. And he joins the family in a family meal. Isn't that a beautiful picture of grace? You and I are marred by sin, but we're called to be part of God's family and to join him at his table, if I may put it that way. That's another invitation to come to communion this evening at Hillview, too, because that's one of the places where we meet with God together. In his book, Charles Swindle writes a little prayer. He says, Thank you, Father for finding me when I wasn't looking, for loving me when I wasn't worthy, for making me yours when I didn't deserve it. Maybe that's a prayer that we might all say this morning. Maybe it'll be a prayer for the first time for you. You've come to this now and then Sunday and you're still thinking about Christian things. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I haven't explained all of that this morning. I barely touched on it. But God's grace reaches out to you and to me this morning, and says, I love you. You can put your name there. I love your name. Because that's what God's doing. William Faulkner once wrote that we should view significant moments in our lives not as monuments, but as footprints. Because, as he said, a monument only says, at least I got this far. While a footprint says, this is where I was, when I moved on. Maybe for you today, the 4th of September will be a day when you can say you moved on in your relationship with God. Maybe it will be a significant moment for you this day as you understand a little more of God's grace pictured here in this lovely story of David and Mephibosheth and acted out most beautifully by the Lord Jesus in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sure to be coming again. Let's pray together for a moment, and then we'll have a song as we conclude. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this lovely story that we've considered this morning about David and Mephibosheth how it is a beautiful picture of your grace towards us. Forgive us when we treat grace lightly, when we treat it easily, when we forget that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we are sinners. Thank you so much for your amazing, wonderful grace. Grant that we might respond to your love and your grace today, maybe for some for the first time, for those of us who know you and love you, that we might be able to be people who are gracious to others, to express your grace and your kindness and your love. We bring you thanks that you work by your Spirit in our lives, molding and shaping us as we were reminded at the beginning of our time together. 
and at this time of new beginnings, of a new academic year, grant that we might be those who trust you and find your grace to be all sufficient for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand to sing Wonderful Grace as we conclude.